Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Okay, hi everybody, welcome to this episode. I am so excited to be hosting you today with John Neufeld from Open Zeppelin. He is a GC, and we're gonna be talking about blockchain security today. So John, why don't you please introduce yourself, introduce Open Zeppelin, and we can get started. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, exciting to be here, Longtime listener, first time caller. Um, so yeah, excited to talk about security. Um, I'm the GC at Open Zeppelin, we're a security solutions company. Uh, prior to that, I was a securities lawyer uh, and being in capital markets got me super interested in, in blockchain and smart contracts, especially around 2017 um, and the big ICO boom at that time. Um, so I've been here at Open Zeppelin for five years. Um, I think it's helpful to explain you know, a bit more about what we do. I think that really will inform how, how I talk about security today. Um, so we provide end-to-end -end security solutions for builders of all types of decentralized technology and at every stage of their development process. Some of what folks might know us for uh, if they're out there building decentralized tech is our public goods. We have a game that's open source where you can learn about how to uh, build secure applications. We have open source contract libraries, which really form the building blocks or the Legos of, of the vast majority of, of what's out there on chain right now. And then we have professional services teams, we do security audits, things like incident response training, uh, and this kind of all ties together in our Defender platform. So that allows developers to bake in security best practices at every stage of their development process. Um, and then once their, their system is live on the blockchain. Um, so yeah, I really think about security based on you know where I sit at Open Zeppelin from the perspective of developing decentralized protocols or applications not as much about, you know, how individual users are out there interacting with these protocols. So um, I just thought I'd, I'd make that, that point at the outset here. That's perfect. Great. And thanks for that clarification. And just to get started, how does blockchain enhance security compared to traditional databases? Yeah, so I think it's interesting to zoom out and uh, just think generally, what does security mean in, in software applications, whether that's web one, two, three, four, whatever you want to put on it. And I think at a high level, you could just define security as the protection of digital information. Um, does you know the application work as intended? Is the information within that application safe from theft, damage, disruption, unauthorized access? You know, is that application, uh, does it have integrity? Is the data available when, when it's needed, uh, you know, do the people having access to that data or application or permissions uh, actually have the right authorization? And so I think blockchain clearly has the ability to improve all these aspects of security generally. So if done right, a blockchain application should actually be more, more secure than uh, another application that requires centralized uh, hosting. So a traditional database, you know, is usually one, two, a, a limited number of parties that are kind of agreeing to the entries. Um, and that requires trusting those small group of people 
um, to review and accept transactions and then maintain that database of transactions accurately over time. So a for-profit corporation, maybe it's AWS, a government <laughs> with the social security number database. Um, it, it could be an, anyone, right? But you're trusting <laughs> that person maintaining the database to make that information available, to keep the data accurate, um, and to accept transactions, not censor them over time. And, and that makes it less resilient because you know the trusted party could go bankrupt. They could be subject to a power outage, uh, something as simple as that. Or if it's a government, it could go under undergo a regime regime change. And you know, in the the political turmoil we see now, I mean that that is a reality still, right? So um, all of these uh, centralized systems, because they're subject to, to those centralized points of failure or control, um, it actually makes it less secure. Um, maybe a topical example is, you know, your Twitter or now X uh, profile. If Elon Musk <laughs> doesn't like your tweet, there's a possibility your tweet gets deleted or you're no longer on the platform. I don't know. You don't have a blue check mark. So uh, I think that's a just maybe a topical example of a centralization problem. Um, and so then when we think about a blockchain database compared to more traditional databases or computing applications, you know, there's some agreed number of validators, usually called nodes. So long as uh, an agreed number of them, let's say a majority are honest, and that does usually require having the right economic incentives in place for them to be honest, uh, then if your transactions, your behavior, your activities on chain comply with the rules of the protocol, those transactions will be affected, they will not be reversed, and if there's a high enough number of validators, they're diverse geographically around the world, um, that means that even if some of those nodes go offline, many of those nodes, hundreds, thousands, your information will still be there, still be available, still be accurate. So, you know, blockchains, another thing is blockchains don't even require the users to trust each other. And this is because of asymmetric cryptography, something I would not be able to explain to you very <laughs> clearly uh, and simply. I, I am a lawyer, uh, not an expert in cryptography, but this effectively means that um, you know users don't have to rely on an intermediary between them to affect that transaction. So at a basic level, that can make transactions more you know quick, secure. Um, you don't have to wait for the intermediary to approve it. So micropayments, innovative financial products become possible. Folks who historically couldn't access big intermediated capital markets selling equity on the NASDAQ uh, may be able to raise microfinancing, whatever, for a farm. And, and sorry, I, I'm going long here, but I, I do think there's <laughs> a lot to unpack. And like, uh, I, I think intermediaries... Uh, when they're in systems, often extract value from transactions in networks, even after that intermediary is not really providing value. Um, and so blockchain networks have the ability to have that value instead accrue to the actual participants in the network. Maybe it's just eliminate transaction fees altogether or make them smaller or have that accrue to the users and participants in the network for public goods funding to improve that network. Um, and so I think this is, is really exciting. We see native tokens that allow people to govern the actual systems that they're using. 
and affect their future versus just being at the mercy of, you know, whatever maybe for-profit motivations uh, a centralized, you know, web property might have. So, um, yeah. And then I guess last also that intermediary in a traditional software system or database also could censor behavior. And I, I touched on that before with the, the example. So maybe I won't give <laughs> another example based on me trying to place a bet on the friends football team going to the FIFA World Cup final ahead of our trip to Paris. I'm super excited. We're going to be in Paris. We can be amongst the local fans in a bar watching the game. I wanted to put money on them earlier. Well, MasterCard didn't want me to. And so, you know, I didn't get to do that. It was perfectly legal to use a sports betting website and uh, MasterCard didn't agree. So I didn't get to add that to little bit of excitement, but they ended up losing in the end, so. Oh, <laughs> oh no loss. Yeah, but I totally see what you mean about eliminating those intermediaries. And also when it comes to protecting information and ensuring like that freedom, not just of the transfer of information, but of value, which is what we see as a huge value proposition on the blockchain. And just following that thought, if you could elaborate why security is so important in the development process of blockchain technology itself. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's two sides to the coin. Blockchain can be like produce more secure computing applications, decentralized applications. At the same time, because the rules are so strict and rigid, because they're embodied by code, uh, that means that if that code has logical flaws, um, it can be exploited. And so long as someone uh, makes a transaction that complies with the strict rules, even if the developers or you know the, the ecosystem didn't intend for the software to be used that way, the code's gonna execute. And so it can lead and still leads uh, to losses and you know applications being exploited for vulnerabilities. Um, and so I think this is still a, a big issue and something you know we're solely focused on at, at Open Zeppelin. Um, if you look for example, the REC leaderboard, tens, hundreds of million dollars, almost on a weekly basis are lost where, you know, uh, malicious actors, uh, sometimes these funds get returned. Sometimes maybe it's an intellectual experiment. Hey, if you say code is law, I'm going to try and break it. I'll give the, the funds back. But, you know, there's also a lot of, uh, I would say, unscrupulous actors out there just trying to take advantage of the fact that this this computing is nascent and, and folks are moving quickly and building quickly. And so um, once once those transactions get affected according to the rules, they're irreversible. It's often very difficult to get those funds back. Uh, and so I think it just really raises the stakes on making sure to build those secure <laughs> blockchain applications. Teams are baking in security best practices as they're developing to make sure, hey, this can't be exploited in a way that that wasn't intended, that puts folks, you know, whether it's funds, whether it's their personal data, access to files, maybe it's digital identity, you know, clearly that needs to um, maintain those, those fundamental aspects of security, right? Integrity, availability, authorization. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think that makes security extra important in blockchain. 
Of course, no, and I think it's essential, like, to get it right from the beginning. And um, this is like a sub question within that. If you could maybe like go a little bit deeper on the fun the fundamental security principles in developing the blockchain itself, like looking at it at the very core. How would you summarize that, or what are like those key principles to look out for? Yeah, and so there's some different considerations uh, if someone's building a blockchain itself, like a, a layer one. Maybe you'd call it um, versus an application built on top of that blockchain, um, like a you know, decentralized application, a protocol. Um, but really, from a security perspective, you're, you're doing the same thing, right? Like, does the code <laughs> operate as intended? And so I think the main point, honestly, is there's no silver bullet in security. Uh, it's not a one point in time thing you can do. Uh, that will guarantee you're safe. And I think teams really just need to take a security first mentality when they're building their organization, their ecosystem, if it's decentralized, uh, really needs to think about security best practices and security controls across the whole developer lifecycle. Um, and, you know, Open Zeppelin was founded in 2015. <laughs> One of our first projects was at the very start of a developer lifecycle. So we developed the open source uh, libraries for Ethereum called Open Zeppelin Contracts. Those are just open source building blocks. Um, and so, you know, starting with things like that um, to make sure you're baking in hardened code, it's been out there, it's been exposed to, you know, people trying to exploit it over many years. Um, and so, yeah, I think like we, we really think, you know, we started there, but now we, we see the whole life cycle. Um, which has been, I, I think, acknowledged or adopted for sure in, in Web2 and, and more traditional development in the past. Uh, folks call it the software development life cycle, often abbreviated SDLC, DevSecOps. Um, but this is basically just an acknowledgement that, hey, uh, the development process for any piece of software is going to be iterative, ongoing, and there's stages. You're going to plan it, you're going to map it out, you're going to code it, you're going to have dependencies, you're going to build tests for it, you're going to audit the code before it goes live, you've got to deploy it onto the blockchain. Once it lives there, people still interact with it. Um, there's, you know, different functions that can be called, it can be upgraded. So, you know, I think often in blockchain, the word immutable gets used, um, which is appropriate in some contexts, like past data recorded in a blockchain would be immutable for sure. Um, however, I think to think that a, an application and how it operates, it, that it will be static forever, it is not true, right? I mean, any product person is going to tell you, well, no, you got to talk to your users, understand their needs, the bright idea, light bulb in your head that you went and built and shipped, uh, you know, you're going to get feedback and you want to incorporate that feedback and evolve your product over time, of course. So, I mean, the vast majority of applications built on top of blockchains now are upgradable. They do evolve. I think what would be really helpful is to have clear regulations uh, around the technology. And so teams can understand, hey, or individual developers or dev shops or whoever you know, how much of an involvement in the ongoing development of this and improvement of this for users. Um, it, if we do an upgrade, it's going to be subject to decentralized government. So governance. So, 
you know, it's not like someone's arbitrarily building something there uh, and like taking on ownership of it. But like, if, if it's clear that, you know, folks are allowed <laughs> to evolve protocols and improve them and have roadmaps, uh, I think that would like even more unlock um, kind of product development and, and the ability for, for protocols to iterate more quickly, fa fail fast, maybe is, is a buzz term there. But all that to say, I think we need to acknowledge the development lifecycle of applications, decentralized or otherwise, is ongoing. And so as you're going through that process, you've got to focus on security at all of those stages I mentioned. Um, yeah, we've broken it down into eight distinct stages for Web3. I'm <laughs> not going to go through all those in detail and put folks to sleep. But, um, you know, I do think there's a general trend in software generally you know, a lot of folks call it shifting left on security. So if that was a timeline, um, you know, earlier in the process, you're baking in uh, security considerations. Um, so, you know, and I, I do think blockchain technology has kind of been stuck on one stage, which is the security code audit. And still you're seeing folks deploy uh, applications, protocols, even without audits. I mean, if you look at the REC leaderboard, a lot of those weren't audited. Um, but, you know, although a, a big aspect of our business is helping folks with audits, I, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge and, and to educate folks that, hey, you know, it's not a one point in time silver bullet. I mean, there's a lot more you need to be doing pre and post deployment uh, to make sure these things are secure for your users. Absolutely. And I like that key distinction you made when um, you mentioned the word immutability um, because oftentimes it gets confused as the blockchain being static or dead but um, I think that's something that we cannot forget and I just wanted to um, highlight that aspect of that as a blockchain developer as a blockchain security developer and all of those players they need to be aware of okay how is it, the ecosystem evolving how can we adapt to it and going back to open zeppelin to the things that you guys are working on developing and um, i wanted us to mention and just talk a little bit more about defender 2.0 if you could just tell our listeners about some of its new developments and how um it's adapting you know like as you mentioned it's been around open zeppelin has been around for some years but what is the the breakthrough or just this um big new thing with defender 2.0 yeah so I think Defender 2.0 really synthesizes our, our thinking around this uh, software development lifecycle and applying it to Web3. Um, and, you know, in the past, we may have been seen as an audit firm or the firm that open offers the Open Zeppelin contract software library. And, you know, we want to make sure folks know security is more than that. And we're there to help them at every stage. And so Defender is a way to kind of bake in right into the developer workflow, security best practices through the whole life cycle. Um, so, you know, I mentioned pre-deployment and post-deployment. So deployment is basically you make your code live in production on the blockchain. So folks can interact with it. Folks could exploit it. They can use it. Um, and so that's a, a maybe pivotal kind of point in time, you could draw a line in sand there. Again, I won't go through the eight stages of the life cycle, but please folks reach out to me if you want to chat about it. Um, but yeah, so in terms of 
uh, Defender, what, what it can offer, let's just give some examples like pre-deployment. So when you start, you're incorporating, you know, open source libraries. For example, we do work with Polkadot, you know, with uh, Starkware, uh, you know, Ethereum and, and the Solidity, uh, excuse me, Solidity libraries were, were you know, our main foray here. Um, and what that means is like you're incorporating um, community vetted code because that's all open source. Folks are looking at it, using it. Uh, it's it's live in production, and and so it becomes hardened over time. You know, it adopts the best the the ERC standards, and so you can take these building blocks, start with something you know is secure, make your adjustments, and then when you're using that kind of common framework to build um, later in the life cycle, it makes it a lot easier to understand. You know, are you using the most up to date versions? Did those past versions you're using, did someone find a bug and you can upgrade um, and it allows testing and more standard monitoring once things are live because it's common pieces of, of, of code, right? Um, and then we, we also have tools that kind of look as you code and scan, you know, some of it's now being done with AI ML, which is pretty cool, um, but also just based on, you know, our kind of ex our expertise in-house, you know, writing rules about where they've seen over the last, you know, eight years, common issues arising and, you know, having warnings pop up as you're going. Um, so that allows you to really develop securely. And then, you know, when it comes to deploying and post-deployment, Defender uh, has some interesting tools like I'm not a technical person, so I, I really hesitate to start to try and speak technically. But, you know, if someone writes, writes source code, it's in human readable format, uh, but the blockchain can't, you know, read that. So it's got to compile it into bytecode. So if you're a governance council member, let's say, or token voters, and you see a piece of code that is, you know, to be approved to go to the blockchain, it can be very hard to see, you know, that bytecode, well, what does this mean? What's here? And so Defender, you know, can run some checks to make sure, hey, this compiled bytecode we're going to put on the blockchain that folks can actually interact with, with real value, matches <laughs> what we think we coded in the back and what we got audited. Uh, you can add context for the folks signing that transaction. Maybe it's a multi-sig of VPs at a bank. Maybe it is token holders, you know, voting in a decentralized vote about, you know, we should make this live. So I think, you know, that's, that's super important. And then, I mean, maybe the last thing to touch on, which I think is a really fast progressing area of security is real time monitoring and okay, you've got this code live on the blockchain. Folks are interacting with your protocol. Are you looking for suspicious activity taking place in your protocol or potential risks? I mean, maybe it's not even a security risk, but financial risk, liquidations, upstream downstream activity and so i think you know monitoring is playing a, a really uh cool uh role these days where hey even though once this transaction uh is mined or is solidified in the blockchain there's still things you can do i mean many hacks don't take place in one block like that in fact it's over a period of time days hours sometimes weeks um, and so there's a possibility to stop hacks before they happen as the person is preparing 
There's a number of stages of attacks that folks go through, um, or at least mitigate losses, right? I mean, don't let them drain a, a contract over multiple blocks. And so um, I, I think there's a, a lot of Wonderful. problems. Here too. And, I, and really interesting how you touched up on the hacks that oftentimes I think it can be um, underestimated, you know, like the the way that you can prevent it essentially that it's not like, oh, this happened by surprise and it was just, you know, destroyed in a couple of seconds, but how it can span out over a longer time. I think that this is an area that doesn't get talked about that much. And I'm glad you touched up on that. Um, and now going back. I will acknowledge, sorry to interrupt you. There is, cause I, I'm sure, well, I'm not that active on Twitter. I more watch rather than uh, tweet, but um, I, yeah, I don't want to get a bunch of security experts <laughs> pinging me. I will say flash loans and, and certain attacks are able to be executed instantly. So it's not like every hack takes place over time. But when you just look at the dollar figures and the number of hacks, I mean, this is real value that's getting taken often from real users and, and people, right? So I think any mitigation uh, is, is better. Of course, yeah. And the thing is that since I think that just as we have so many diverse products, also the way that the hacks happen can be super diverse. So it's not to say that all of them are over a long time or in a second, um, but it's about just raising the awareness that these hacks happen in a multiple um, array of forms and of timings. So it's just a different um, take on it. But going back to regulatory requirements, because earlier you touched up on um, having this more harmonized regulation, especially when we're talking about um, the, the cycle, you know, the different stages that we are. So I wanted you to, let us know a bit more about how does Open Zeppelin approach compliance with regulatory requirements while maintaining that blockchain security for clients in highly regulated industry? Like, how do you reconcile those two forces? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a, a really interesting area. There's so much interest from regulated entities, a lot of financial institutions. Um, but, you know, we just don't have regulations in many jurisdictions yet that are tailored to blockchain technology. I mean, I would generally speaking, regulations, uh, especially around finance, are expecting or assuming that there's going to be <laughs> one, two, three, a vast number of intermediaries there to play certain roles. And, you know, we talked earlier about the costs, the risks that these intermediaries bring to the systems. Like I said, I was a securities lawyer doing public capital markets. I saw all the intermediaries. I was, you know, arguably a part of them. And, you know, the millions of dollars that it cost to sell any amount of equity into a public market in the US. Um, but there aren't intermediaries in blockchain technology. And so if you try and apply those regimes to this technology, it just doesn't fit. Um, and so I think, you know, these institutions are super excited to apply this. They see the benefits, right? I mean, they like, we, we want this. Um, it's just super hard. So for them to be able to comply with current regulations, often they do need certain centralized points of control. Um, and, you know, part of our job is to acknowledge, okay, that is going to have to exist for where they're at now. Um, ultimately, if, presents some centralization risk, um, but it, it's just something we, we have to acknowledge. So they, 
their users aren't getting the full benefit of decentralization. And, you know, I think ultimately when regulations come that will acknowledge this technology will allow these, these companies to go even more decentralized, pass those benefits on to their consumers, their users. Um, but, you know, time will tell uh, how, how fast and how clear and, and how tailored those regulations will be. I think, you know, the work you folks are doing and, and this podcast is, is a great step in that direction. I think one of the, is it a branch of wisdom uh, on the, or the tree of wisdom, but wisdom. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, it is sensible regulations that, you know, and I think the first one is you got to understand the technology first, right. To, to roll out this regulation. So um, yeah, I, I think we're in the, in the right direction. Um, and then, you know, defender 2.0, because it really does kind of help folks bake in security best practices uh, along the whole software development life cycle um, also caters to regulated institutions. Uh, for example, um, you know, it helps compartmentalize access privileges to certain aspects of interacting with your protocol. Um, so I think that brings more traditional software security to the blockchain where someone else might just be literally going in the command line and interacting one-on-one -on -one with, with, with a, a protocol. Now folks need to log on through a more traditional SaaS platform, have the right credentials to then get to a point where they could maybe interact, change a parameter, something like that. Um, and then the platform logs all activity. We pipe that data into whatever, Datadog, Splunk, compliance platforms that these institutions need to have, right? Logging all their activity when it comes to technology. Uh, and it just makes them easy for them to do that. Then they have you know, record keeping, they can meet those requirements. They could ever do forensics if they needed to, looking back. Um, but the cool thing is Defender does still respect the decentralized nature of the underlying technology. So it's not going to retain any custody over their assets. It has no private keys. You know, ultimately, they're going to have to sign those transactions or the right person is going to have to sign those transactions within the platform. Um, so it's kind of a balance of, of both, you know, the Web 2, Web 3 worlds, if you want to use those terms. Right. No, that that definitely makes sense. Um, and just following that, that train of thought. I think that a lot of people are talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning. We've seen that is a very interesting branch, even if people are not directly in, in this space. I think that by now there can be a lot of um, misunderstandings and also just fear in general. But I think that um, I think that these emerging technologies are actually being leveraged to enhance blockchain security. So if you could um, elaborate on how for example, artificial intelligence is helping um, this this whole process of blockchain security maybe in a different um, way that it would be originally thought. And you could just share with us your your insight on that. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think you know everyone is super excited about AI ML uh, right now. That's <laughs> the hype cycle we're in. Uh, block, block blockchain ones in the past for a bit now. Uh, and everyone is playing with chat GPT as, as are we, um, and, you know, including myself every, every day, um, when it comes to my work, but yeah, I think like as happens in hype cycles, folks, uh, leap to conclusions about what could happen, um, pretty quickly. 
but yeah, we just started playing around with it, testing it. We do have an AI ML team dedicated to working on this stuff. We did a fun experiment that folks might like to hear about. We have Ethernaut. It's a basically a game where you're trying to break a decentralized application. So you're trying to hack it. Uh, you pass the levels by finding the security vulnerability. And this is to help white hat security researchers improve their skills, learn about blockchain security. So we let uh, chat GPT-4, I think it was, go, go at these levels, pass 19 out of 23 levels, which maybe sounds impressive, but if you look at the date of the training data for chat GPT, like it started failing as, as soon as the data cut off from releases of the levels. So what people do is write solutions uh, to passing the Ethernaut levels, ChatGPT was trained on some of them and was able to kind of repeat uh, those those solutions. And it, it makes sense. It's a large language model. Um, it was meant to have human-like conversations, not detect security vulnerabilities. Um, but when you build a model that is actually trained on high-quality vulnerability detection data sets, which is you know something we've been doing since 2015, uh, it can yield a lot superior results. So we have had success um, training kind of a more customized model um, on re-entrancy attacks, which is a pretty common type of, of vulnerability found in, in blockchain code and other code. Um, and, you know, they have seen the ability uh, to pick out these um, more complex vulnerabilities on, on its own. So, I think that's super exciting. And I think as you know, our team expands and others expand, I'm sure there's other folks out there doing really cool stuff. Um, there, there's promise there. I, it's not a reality yet. And I mean, I see it as I play with uh, Chad GPT as a lawyer, it can be super helpful at certain tasks. At the end of the day, uh, you need <laughs> to apply your own judgment and, and um, kind of assess if, if what, you've come up with is accurate and, and you have to kind of take responsibility for that. And I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, we need human security auditors. Um, but one area where I think AI ML has excelled in blockchain security is on the monitoring side. I mean, the beauty of, of blockchain is a, a public blockchain, at least all this data is available to anyone. Uh, and it's constantly being generated on a block by block basis. And I mean, big data <laughs> is uh, a beautiful place to be for AI ML, right? Uh, it's able to ingest and make sense of it um, much more efficiently uh, than in the past now. So I think, you know, AI ML is recognizing patterns that lead to malicious activity on chain and then detecting them in real time. Um, on the on the Forda network, which is actually a decentralized security monitoring network, we helped initially build. It's now actually fully decentralized. Super cool. Anyone can deploy a, a bot that scans for malicious transactions, uh, and anyone can just go sub subscribe and and basically pay their their fees on chain and, and get access to that security data. Um, and I I think in Forda you know, a number of bots have started to incorporate AI ML where, yeah, it's looking 
on a block by block basis every couple of seconds what's going on and it can recognize patterns like for example in a uh, an account uh, was created <laughs> and that that a uh, address you know had previously been connected with an account that was funded from tornado cash there's one red flag and it's one step or two steps removed uh, from from that address well, when you look back on past hacks, that's often where uh, hackers are funding their attacks from. So, whoa, this could be a suspicious transaction. If it is a user, you might not want to sign this transaction. And these bots can kind of pop up an alert in your wallet going, whoa, whoa, triple check all of the, the information in this transaction uh, and don't sign blindly. Um, and so I think that's a really cool aspect um, of security that's advancing very rapidly right now. That's fascinating. And just to wrap up, um, because we could go on, but just one last question. <laughs> um, just what advice uh, do you have for organizations that are looking to strengthen their blockchain security posture and choose the right security partner or, or solution? What are those key things to look out for? Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I think it's just, Teams need to embed a security-first mindset at all aspects of the developer lifecycle. Now, teams often, when they start, are smaller, and you know they should find, I think, a security partner that can help them at every step of the way. And sometimes that doesn't even require hiring anyone, right? A lot of those early stages, things we offer out there, like OpenZeppelin contracts, they're open source. They're free to use. Um, and so I think... Just finding a security partner that can, yeah, really help you with, with all aspects. And it, it allows you to not, you know, hopefully get up to a release deadline. You want to launch your product. You're sh out there shopping and haggling with different audit firms subject to whatever the pricing is at that time. And, you know, availability can be super tough when it's booking an audit. And I think, you know, finding that partner early, we've had most success where we, enter into kind of a year relationship with folks. We help them even as they're building, kind of map out the best way to build with security in mind, maybe building tests and then coding to your tests. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to their audit, well, we know that code, we help kind of guide them in its creation. Uh, our team's able to do that audit a lot faster. Uh, that means lower costs. It doesn't affect their release schedules. And, then when it comes to the next iteration of that, that protocol, the V2, let's say, you know, our team, again, knows the code base, uh, how it's supposed to operate. They can kind of jump right in. And, you know, even in a worst case scenario where they have to pick up the red phone and they have, you know, a, an incident they need to respond to. Well, you know, we, we have a team of experts that, that know their system inside and out and, and can react very quickly and hopefully help with anything. And so, yeah, I, I would just think about or, or encourage folks to think about finding the right partner uh, over time. And, you know, there's there's a lot of great security companies out there. Um, and so. So, yeah, think think holistically, I think, about security. Of course. I like that phrase. Think holistically. And well, thank you so much, John, for such an insightful discussion, for covering different areas of such an important topic that I think um, is relevant uh, now more than ever with everything that we're seeing. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you for your time and for being on the Owl Explains podcast. And um, 
if there's anything you'd like to say just to close where people can contact you, can reach out to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, thanks again for having me. This was fun chatting about security. Like you said, we could probably go on and on. Um, but yeah, I mean, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm John Newfeld, general counsel at Open Zeppelin. You can uh, email me, legal at Open Zeppelin. Happy to chat, happy to collaborate. Um, and yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks again for having me. Awesome. Thank you, John. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hootful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.